you'd like to follow along, that's John 18. That's where we're at this morning, beginning in verse 28. We're going to look at that through chapter 19, verse 15. The topic, pressured by the chief priests and elders of Israel, Pontius Pilate concedes to sentence Jesus to death. The title of the message, ladies and gentlemen, this is your Pilate conceding. Father, we are here today drawn by your love, thankful for your grace, seeking your mercy. As always, Lord, we desire that you would speak to us out of the living word of God, that our lives would be greatly encouraged and refreshed by the living water that's therein. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Are you a religious professional who no longer believes in God or God's? Have you remained in vocational ministry, secretly hiding away your non-belief? Are you struggling over where to go from here with your life and career? If this is you, we invite you to join the Clergy Project. I wish I could say I was making that up. The Clergy Project aims to provide a safe and secure online community for religious leaders who no longer believe. According to them, the largest and fastest growing religion in the United States isn't religion, it's the absence of religion. Shocking, but not unpredictable. The Bible in passages like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, predict the end times falling away from the faith. The Jewish authorities who pressured Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus made an incredibly shocking statement. We have no king but Caesar. Shocking, but not unpredictable. John made it clear from the start, chapter one of his gospel, that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The rejection of Jesus was anticipated in the Old Testament. One reference we'll do this morning. Psalm 118, verse 22 says of the coming king, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We're gonna follow Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, then to Pontius Pilate, the Jewish authorities blaspheme, rejecting king and kingdom. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you expect people to reject King Jesus. And number two, you endure patiently for the return of King Jesus. Let's take a look at our expectations in chapter 18. The kingdom of God means different things to different groups. We could characterize it in at least these three ways. First, God is king from everlasting to everlasting and obviously from Genesis through Revelation that. David's saying your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so it's valid to talk about the kingdom of God as just God being king over his universe and his creation, no matter what the particulars are on the earth. Second, God promised the nation of Israel that the ancestor and descendant of King David would rule over a kingdom on the earth. In many passages promising it, there is no disputing it is a material kingdom, a flesh and blood, stick and stucco kingdom. And thirdly, there is right now the invisible spiritual aspect of a kingdom in the sense that Jesus rules as a king in the hearts of believers. Philip Graham Riken writes, Theologians sometimes describe this as the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has already come, but it is not yet here in its glory. Christ has already come, but he has not yet come the second time. 
We speak of furthering the kingdom of God or bringing souls into the kingdom of God. It isn't wrong to speak that way as long as you realize that the kingdom is not here, but it's coming in the future. And by the way, the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven we find to be interchangeable. Most scholars feel that. Some make a big deal about them referring to different things, but you can see those as the same thing. Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote, what would the Jews of Jesus' day have understood the kingdom to be? The messianic Davidic kingdom on this earth in which the Jewish people would have a prominent place. Jesus came to earth as the ancestor and descendant of King David who would rule over the kingdom of God on earth and through John the Baptist and himself offered the kingdom. He was decisively rejected by the Jewish authorities, reaching its pinnacle when they claimed that their king was Caesar. Their rejection of King Jesus cannot overthrow God's promises for a kingdom of God on earth because those promises are unconditional. Their rejection only postponed the kingdom of God until Jesus' second coming to earth. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. You might remember him saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In his first coming, Jesus would have gathered Israel into the kingdom as promised. Instead, his own rejected him, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, but they will receive him the next time he comes. So with that doctrinal background, let's pick it up in verse 28. Thus, uh, rather, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. The praetorium was the place where the Roman governor heard and decided on cases. The Jewish authorities were faced with the task of convincing Pontius Pilate to execute Jesus for them because they, uh, though they had some self-government, they were not able to put people to death. Any number of things could defile a Jew, excluding them from full participation in Passover festivities until they were cleansed through various rituals and sacrifices. For example, they had to remove all leaven from their house during Passover and eat only unleavened bread. Now, Gentiles didn't do that, and so if you went into a Gentile area, you're liable to look down and see a little tiny piece of yeast. Ah! Uh, And you're defiled. That's it. You're done for maybe one day, maybe three days, maybe a month. Who knows? It depends on what was going on with the defiling. And so, uh, so this was a real issue for them. Now, they thought that killing Jesus was necessary since he was to them a blasphemer, all right? Uh, so regardless what we know, they believed he was worthy of death because he was blaspheming, saying he was equal with God. Granting that, they still went about it illegally, And so they wanted to do what they believed was the right thing, but they had to do it illegally because they couldn't have anything to really accuse Jesus of. He didn't do anything wrong, as Pilate will attest and all. I want to make mention of the fact that they were under the law and they kept these meticulous rules about yeast. You know, they're going to murder Jesus and worry about yeast. You know, that's the thing. But you can't pick and choose when you're under the law. So if you want to be directed and guided by law or legalism, then it's all or nothing. You're all in. Today, I would uh, 
throw out there that a good example of this is uh, uh, Sabbatarianism. People who keep, air quotes, I haven't done that in a long time, who keep, uh, my son and I hate air quotes. Anyway, uh, who keep the Sabbath, supposedly. And not just Adventists. Uh, there are Baptist groups and Pentecostal groups. There are all kinds of Protestant groups that are Sabbatarian. They keep, half a quote, the Sabbath. Uh, but the truth is, no, no one can keep the Sabbath outwardly. I don't even know what that means if you're not a Jew, for one thing. The Jews had, you know, hey, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. There's not really much about it, so let's make up a bunch of rules and decide that this is what keeping the Sabbath is. I don't know what you do if you're a, you know, a Protestant Christian to keep the Sabbath, because there aren't any rules, so you just make them up. And so nobody really keeps the Sabbath. Uh, but you know, the, the law is just a cruel taskmaster. Jesus is the Sabbath now, and we enter, him, uh, enter into his rest. And so we're, we're keeping the Sabbath all the time just by knowing Jesus Christ and resting in him. Verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Evildoer translates as bad doer. My paraphrase would be, Pilate, Jesus is a bad dude guilty of bad dudery. That's essentially what they're saying. He's, he's bad. And so we wouldn't have brought him otherwise. Then Pilate said to them, then you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Romans thoroughly delighted in executing people. It's what got them out of bed in the morning. Methods included beheading, being lashed to death, being burned alive, strangulation, being cast from a great height, being buried alive, drowning, death by beast, and of course, crucifixion. If you killed your parent, there was a special type of capital punishment it was called the punishment of the sack. This is true. I'm not making this up. The offender was placed in a leather sack with a rooster, a dog, a snake, and a monkey, and then thrown into the sea, lake, or river. And so you're tied up in a sack with Little Jerry, Cujo, Ka, and Curious George. And now, I don't know if it was symbolic or what, but it, I mean, it just, it, it speaks to me of, hey, we need to get even more creative with killing people. How about, can you imagine the meeting, the, the, you know, the prison guards are getting together and say, how about we put people in a leather sack? Well, that's not enough. I say we throw a rooster in there, you know, like a fighting gamecock. Well, if we're going to do that, let's put a snake in there too. And let's not forget the monkey. <laughs> hey, I would die just having that being that close to a monkey, you know, like a chimpanzee. These people have chimpanzees for pets. You're insane. That thing's going to rip your face off one day. I've seen the Planet of the Apes several times. Non-lethal weapons. Jesus not only predicted his death, but the method of it. Throughout this account, we are reminded that he was in charge, not in custody. I mean, physically he was in custody, but he was the one in charge. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? John omitted it, but the Jewish authorities accused Jesus of three things before Pilate. Number one, subverting the nation. Number two, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. And number three, proclaiming uh, to be a king. 
These protests piqued Pilate's professional prosecutorial priorities. Couldn't do it first service either. Verse 34, then Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Answering questions with a question, that is the Jesus style and we love it. The steward of the gospel, you and I, we ought to be the one guiding the conversation. We're the ones who know the way, the truth, and the life. When you go to the doctor, is it to announce your self-diagnosis to him and then to just leave? Well, no, you you go to the doctor because you think there's something wrong with you and you want the doctor to tell you what it is because he knows more than you most of the time, unless you spend a really long time on the Internet. No, I'm just kidding, sort of. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying? It, you, you know, so if you're in a discussion with somebody about the Lord, you need to take control of that discussion. You might even have to ignore their question or their line of reasoning and just bring up something else that's more fascinating and that you want to talk about. Because they don't know, they're, they're, if they're non-believers, they're unbelievers, they're putting up a, a wall, they're putting up a fence, they're trying to get out of that conversation and so you can't be drugged down with them. And so try that. Jesus did it all the time. Did it to Nicodemus. Remember? Ah, you're a man come from God. Yeah, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. Whoa, wait a minute, time out. Excuse me, what just happened? What do you mean I need to be born again? And and then we get some of the most precious uh, verses in all the word of God. Pilate was relying on the testimony of unreliable men. Unbelievers still do this today. For example, many people outright reject God because they think Darwinian evolution is true. And so if you start talking to them about the Lord, they think, oh, you know, that's been disproven by the scientific facts of evolution. There is no such thing as God and all that. Well, those are unreliable men that are saying that, to, you know, unreliable scientists, uh, because the truth is, uh, if, you know, people always think that Christians don't want to look at the facts because they're so full of faith. You know, the truth is, bring out the facts. Let's look at all of geology, all of archaeology, all of history, all of anthropology, whatever ology you want to look at, and let's look at the actual facts and see whether they fit better with Darwinian evolution or with special creation. And by far, they fit better with special creation. Christianity is not a science, but it is scientific in the sense that it doesn't, uh, you know, deny anything scientifically. Scientists have gone nuts the last few years, right? They can't prove evolution, so they say, it's kind of like the X-Men. Every generation or so, something amazing happens. We just, because you say, well, where are the uh, transitional species? Uh, We don't need any because they just appear. Oh, okay. Just like the universe appeared? Yeah, yeah, because there is a multiverse. (laughs) I saw it in a Marvel movie. And uh, so, you know, so nanny nanny. And so people are relate, they're relying on unreliable men who are not telling them the truth. Verse 15, excuse me, verse 35. If you want to go to verse 15, that's fine. But I'm in verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? As the narrator of the series Cop says, we are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Nevertheless, Don't we tend to decide on guilt or innocence based on reporting prior to any trial? I mean, when you see these people in custody, you know, and and they say, oh, they're accused of killing so-and-so. Yeah, they did it. They wouldn't arrest him if he wasn't guilty, right? I mean, maybe you don't think that. Maybe it's just me and I've just exposed a terrible sociopathic flaw in my life, but 
Anyway, Pilate assumed Jesus was guilty because they brought him there. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In the International Standard Version, it's a lot clearer. He says, but for now, my kingdom is not from here. The Jewish authorities rejected the king. The material kingdom is on hold for now until the second coming. Jesus Jesus wasn't overruling centuries of unconditional promises to Israel that they would have the promised land and a kingdom. They will, just not now. So it isn't like Jesus says, oh, oh, that's passe, who cares? Nobody really wants a kingdom on earth. I'm the kingdom. If you're in me, you're the kingdom. There's a sense in which that's true, but it doesn't overrule the fact that he's coming back to establish a kingdom. And so essentially he's telling uh, Pilate, hey, you don't have anything to worry about from me now because the Jews have rejected their kingdom, and so this is all on hold. Uh, In fact, you don't know it, but in just a few years, your Roman legions are going to destroy Israel. Verse 37, therefore Pilate uh, said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, whatever else is going on here, the Lord is evangelizing Pilate. He said, for this cause I have come into the world. That's an unusual thing to say, really, isn't it? I know, would you tell Pilate, well, I have come into the world. Okay, where did you come from? Were you not in the world? Were you not of the world? And so the Lord is hinting at the fact that he's otherworldly. Jesus said, for this cause I was born. He was sent from heaven to earth for the cause of dying on the cross, for what's coming. Jesus bore witness to the truth about God himself, the Holy Spirit, man, sin, and salvation, and every other important doctrine. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice as the gospel is spread and men are saved. And so this is a little four-point evangelism that Jesus is doing to Pilate. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. There was no fault to find in the sinless Son of God. Pilate would, however, punish Jesus and then sentence him to death. What is truth? Well, that's simple. It's what God has revealed in the inspired Word of God. And it's Jesus who is the Word of God. Mankind wants to ignore God and conduct their own search for truth. That's what's happening. Romans chapter 1 They did not want to retain God in their knowledge. They said, hey, we don't want God. We don't want to know about God. God is a, he wants to mandate morality and things like that. He wants us to be submissive to him. We don't want to have anything to do with God. We'll search for the truth ourselves. And so you have all these philosophies and religions and other isms. I was thinking about how um, not too long ago, even though I've pointed out that some of it was unreliable, not too long ago, people did trust in science, right? It's like, because science is a a discipline of getting things right and, you know, uh, of solving, you know, human problems. Now we live in a generation, or in a time, I should say, when science is out the window, right? You can't say, well, what's the science? Who cares? You know, if you're climate change, right? I don't want to take a position, 
I think you know what my position is, but I don't want you to, I don't want to take one. But uh, if you don't believe a certain way about climate change, you're not scientific, even though there is science, you know, that needs to be listened to on that. Individual people, science means nothing to anymore. Biology, out the window, right? You want to be a man and you're a woman, you want to be a woman and you're a man, you just have to say you are. And now there's a whole philosophy. Uh, who's that lady? I don't want to bring up her name, but she, the lady that said there's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat. Stacey Abrams, right? Not that I, there's no such thing. She said it. There's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat. Science says there is. No, nah, no, it doesn't. And if it does, it's wrong. And so it's crazy. And so all the while, there's the truth. And, and it's pretty cool. You know, it, it leads to really nice things and good things. Uh, and so we want to stick with that. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas had quite the rap sheet actually. The other gospels tell us he was a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. And so from Pilate's point of view, he was a badder deuterer than Jesus was a bad deuter. Uh, and so uh, he thought, you know, he, Pilate's pull, pulling out every trick that he has. And in a minute, we're going to find out that he is, not only he loses this encounter, he really doesn't have the power he thinks he has. There's actually quite a lot of symbolism in the com, uh, comparison of Jesus with Barabbas. For example, he represented the kind of Messiah they were hoping for, one who would overthrow Rome and establish Israel, uh, Israel's dominance and sovereignty again. Allow me a quick devotional application before we finish this section. It's an election year. What kind of people are we looking for to lead us? Well, a Barabbas can certainly affect change, but it is righteousness, not expediency, that exalts a nation. And so when you vote pro-life, also look for the righteousness of candidates and figure out where they're coming from morally and as human beings. A few months ago, I mentioned several prominent Christian leaders who have outright rejected the Lord. When I say it shouldn't shock us, I don't mean it doesn't hurt, but we need to toughen up, quite honestly, because apostasy is only going to get worse. We can't afford to resign ourselves to despair. We need to prepare. Number two, you endure patiently waiting for the return of King Jesus. Most of you know the story of Senator John McCain's ordeal as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Despite the lack of food, recurring dysentery, his various injuries, and the uncertainty of when his next beating might occur, McCain managed to stay alive. Three things kept me going, he wrote. Faith in God, faith in my fellow prisoners, and faith in my country. What kept Jesus going? Jesus saw you perishing, consigned to hell, and he refused to break. He was going to finish what he started. The Bible says in another section that uh, he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him, and that joy was your salvation. Verse 1 of chapter 19, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. I wonder if some of this torture was intended by Satan to break Jesus. You look at Satan, and I've said before, you know, what an idiot. I mean, you know, he must have known that the Lord was going to die. 
that he wanted to die on the cross, but he, he realized he couldn't prevent that. He, God providentially was going to see to it that that was going to happen, but maybe because Jesus was God and man, maybe he could break him. Maybe he could get him to go off course a little bit, right? He tried in the 40-year wilderness temptation. He said, hey, you don't need to die on the cross. I will give you right now all of the kingdoms of the world. I'm the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. You can have all the kingdoms. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And, you know, that's actually, you know, quite a temptation when you're 40 years fasted and you're a man uh, and there's the devil personally talk. Do you want to talk to the devil? I'd rather pass on that. You know, he's pretty smart. He's wily. And now here's uh, Satan again, you know, say, you know, Jesus, let this cup pass from you. You don't need to go to the cross. Remember what I told you three and a half years ago? If the Lord were to suddenly say, Father, that's enough. I can't drink this cup of suffering. I'm done. Well, mankind would have perished eternally. The strategy continued on the cross. Remember the crowd tormented the Lord saying, come down from the cross if you can. Well, he could have, right? Because he was Jesus. But he didn't. He chose to stay there. Verse four. Then Pilate went out again and said to him, to them rather, behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, behold the man. William MacDonald writes, it is difficult to know whether he said this in mockery, in sympathy, or without any particular motion. I see this as really beautiful. There is an indication in the original language that Pilate sat Jesus on his throne. There he is on the throne with all the trappings of a king. He's got a crown and he's got a robe. But he simultaneously, as a man, is bleeding and suffering in the stead of others. And so it's a picture of what Jesus was about to do for us and was doing for us. I would say, behold the God-man, the true king, having come as a man for this purpose. Verse 6, therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now, there's a big argument about this, but I think he gave them license to crucify Jesus. He said, okay, you take him, you kill him. He wanted to shirk any responsibility or accountability, but we can't do that. It was my sin and your sin that put Jesus on the cross, so we, we can't pass off accountability and responsibility. Pilate, you know, famously is going to wash his hands it doesn't, you can't, the outward washing doesn't do anything. His heart was wrong. He said over and over again, this man is innocent. I find no fault in him. Go ahead and kill him if that's what you want because I'm more worried about my position. Jews answered him, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was afraid. What was he afraid of? We don't know, but Albert Barnes suggests it was probably the alarm of his conscience Never forget that God is always at work, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know how many times I've thought about this, but it's true. Jesus wanted Pilate to be saved. I mean, we see Pilate as just a wicked character in history, as, sadly almost as a tool that's used by Satan. But Pilate was a man. who He was one of the whosoevers that Jesus died for. And we need to remember that. And so the Lord is evangelizing. He's trying to put this stuff forth. 
Verse 9, and when, uh, he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Where is, uh, what's your origin or your source? And so this begins to be a little bit stranger of a conversation, right? He goes back and says, no, he, you know, he, he, had, he knew he was Jesus of Nazareth, but he said, where are you really from? Because he, he was kind of nervous now about him being the son of God. Jesus gave him no answer. Maybe the Holy Spirit was opening Pilate's spiritual eyes to see that the Lord was, was not from earth. That's the first point he made, Jesus to him, remember? He says, I've come into the world. And so the Spirit is working on Pilate. So why didn't Jesus answer Pilate? Why didn't he follow up? A person needs to respond to the light he receives before more is given. You don't interrogate God, satisfying your curiosities before exercising faith. Job found that out. In the final chapters of Job, I love it, in verse 30, or chapter 38, after Job has been doing all kinds of complaining about God, then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I'm going to question you, and you go ahead and answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have the understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know. Who stretched the line upon it? What were its foundations fastened to? who laid its cornerstone. And he just kind of, in a very beautiful way, put Job in his place and said, look, you've been interrogating me. You don't know anything about what's going on. Wait until the book of Job is written, and then you can figure out all this stuff. And so Pilate goes in, he's still interrogating Jesus, and you know, the, that's not what you do with God. It's okay to ask questions and stuff, but you, know, you need to take the next step of faith, and Pilate apparently did not. Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Those who delivered Jesus to be crucified were responsible for their decisions, even while God was providentially moving behind the scenes, just the way Pilate was. Uh, greater sin, uh, yeah, there are some sins that are greater sins. I mean, we, we like to say all sin is alike in the sense that one sin will keep you out of heaven, right? Because you're not perfect. But all sins are not alike. Uh, being angry with somebody because they cut you off isn't the same as running them off the road into a ditch and making sure they're dead. I mean, you know what I mean? So it's sin to be angry with them. But when you run through that scenario in your mind, my, my dad was the greatest driver for this, you know. I mean, he would... You know, I, I'd be, I remember we had this huge Cadillac the size of this room. And uh, remember when the cars were cars, you know, you could live in the trunk. And we're driving to, I think we were going to Nevada to, to his boat. And uh, this guy cut us off, sort of. I mean, it wasn't any big deal. And, oh, that was it, man. Cut this guy. I want you to cut this. Get, get close. Get on his bumper. You know, and so I'm like, we're not even wearing seatbelts. We're going 90 miles an hour in this. <laughs> get on his bumper. Like, no, no. I'm like try to be an, an obedient son without getting into a murder situation, you know. But uh, anyway, those were the days. And so uh, what it gets down to, too, here is, is a discussion of free will. Actually, Jesus says, hey, they're responsible. And so you say, well, I thought God was sovereign. Well, yeah, he is, but he's not forcing anybody to do this. They're still responsible for their own actions. A lot of times people say, well, you know, we believe in the sovereignty of God, not the free will of man. They're not exclusive. And in fact, if you believe that man has free will, you think God is, has a greater sovereignty. 
because he's able to work through man's free will rather than just make man a puppet and say, well, yeah, I, everything's going to work out the way I said it was because you can't do anything that I don't want you to do. And somehow they come up with the idea that there's a free will in that, but there isn't. And so it's, you know, it's an unsolvable problem, other, obviously, but even in the future, you are going, once we're in our glorified bodies in heaven, you're going to be a free, a free will being who cannot sin. Adam and Eve were free will beings who could sin. That was the test. We're going to be free will beings who cannot sin. How do I know that? Because God has free will and cannot sin, right? We accept that. We don't, no one here believes that God can sin. If you do, you've got problems. But, um, you know, so anyway, uh, God holds mankind accountable for its actions. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go... You are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That was it, the Caesar card, right? They, they, it, this is like political entrapment. I mean, they, they so bamboozled Pilate to get to this point and say, oh, we're more Roman than you are because we're following Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but in the Hebrew of Gabbatha. D.A. Carson writes, in order to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities made themselves out to be more loyal subjects of uh, Rome than Pilate. The Jews have lowered themselves about as far as they can go. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover. This is the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so all that Pilate can do is try and elicit some stupid things from them as well, try and save face. But what's amazing here is this phrase, we have no king but Caesar. These are leaders of the chief priests. They're the elders of Israel, the official you know, function of Israel, the government of Israel. And they say, you know what? We're telling you right now, Caesar is our king. It's incredible that that would come out of the mouth of any Jew, let alone these men. And so when, when we say the, the Jews rejected the kingdom, they did it in a really strong way against uh, knowledge because they didn't want to have any part of Jesus or his kingdom. Again, quoting D.A. Carson, by vehemently insisting they have no king but Caesar, they are not only rejecting Jesus' messianic claims, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope as a matter of principle, rejecting any claimant, and finally disowning the kingship of the Lord himself. We ought to sing, ain't no kingdom while he's gone. God is building his church. We are his spiritual temple on earth, both individually and corporately. We're in the church age between the first and second comings of the Lord. We understand that. And so uh, when you read this, you have to keep the kingdom in mind and what it is and uh, what it is biblically, not what we want to think it is. I'm going to close with a quote from a guy named Derek Bingham. It's, uh, it's, it's a, one of those emotional things, but I think it's really good. He says, I gave him a crown of thorns. He gave me a crown of righteousness. I gave him a cross to carry. He gave me his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. I gave him nails through his hands. He gave me safely into his father's hands, from which no power can pluck me. I gave him no covering, stripping him of clothes. He gave me a garment of salvation. I gave him vinegar to drink. He gave me living water. 
I crucified and slew him on a tree. He gave me eternal life. It was my sinfulness that put him there. It is his sinlessness that puts me here.